Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. So uh, it's been a real whirlwind of the last week. Uh, perhaps you are feeling it as well. So yesterday was Mother's Day and uh, I got some flowers, got a card, went to the art museum, all those things, you know, which was really nice. Then uh, later in the day, I'd been asked to emcee a storytelling event about nurturing at a really beautiful farm, which was great. Um, I hadn't done anything like that in a while. And it was really nice to sort of like just be out in the world with people (laughs) and, you know, obviously to hear their stories as well. And I, you know, hey, I managed not to cry even though I thought I was going to cry at basically every single story. Um, they were, it was really nice. So uh, in addition, you know, I've been playing music, which has been helping me sort of get through the week a bit. And I, you know, I'm currently playing with two projects, one with some friends who I had not played with in the past, um, but I've known for a long time. And one of them plays guitar and sings and the other plays synth. And I've almost never played with another guitarist before, which is kind of a weird thing. Um, or nor have I really played with a synth player. So that's been a fun adventure. And um so we're we're hoping to do some recording this month, which is awesome. And you know, and I also hadn't played with my longtime friend and drummer Meredith for a while, but we've been playing again recently, and that feels just really great as well. So boy, boy, did I need it. Uh, so I'd gone to our local rally for abortion rights on Tuesday. If you're listening to this, not this this week, <laughs> um, there had been a, a leak about. Roe versus Wade earlier in the week about uh, potentially overturning it. And so that was, that's really what I'm, what I'm really tiptoeing around here. So I'd, I'd gone to our local rally for abortion rights on Tuesday night and I almost got into a scuffle with a guy. He was probably about a foot taller than I am. And my friend had walked away to get a sign. So since I was standing there alone, he decided to come over and basically sort of start trolling me. He kept getting in my face and I told him that I didn't want to talk to him and, you know, but he kept messing with me and the woman behind me intervened on my behalf, which gave me a moment to sort of like say my piece and then just like get him to leave. And then another woman walked up and said that, you know, she'd had her eye on him as well and was watching the situation. And, you know, that was for me a moment this week when I actually felt really nurtured and, you know, really it can look like many things. So that was, that was nice. Um, so on a related note, I'll talk about abortion rights and their connection to music year after today's interview with Sky Deep, today's guest, who is an amazing human all around. She just does so much. She's been a part of Peach's live touring band. She does electronic music, but also like plays guitar and sings, among other things. She DJs, she teaches, she wrote, directed, and starred in her own movie. She has a YouTube page. She has a clothing line. The list goes on. But first, I want to thank our episode's sponsors. Thanks to Earthquaker Devices. They have recently released their fabulous new pedal, the Special Cranker, which is a variation on their Speaker Cranker. Formerly only a special release, but now available to everyone, that means you, for just $99, which is kind of a wild price for a boutique pedal. And with you know, some they have some special tweaks to it that make it sort of more useful to you. The previous one was just one knob. This one, three. More control. Uh, it can sort of toe the line between a number of different things, but ultimately it will sort of crank the character of whatever amp you're using, sort of like your amp on steroids or something. 
It sounds absolutely delightful, all the videos I've seen. Um, when I went to my local shop last week, it had already sold out, so I haven't tried it yet. But when I do, I will give a full report. Um, but the fact that it sold out already should probably speak for itself, right? So to learn more about the Special Cranker or any of their other pedals, check out EarthquakerDevices.com. Up next, we have Stopbox Sonic. Stopbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration, specializing in effects pedals. They offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Adam and Jeff and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009. By working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations, they do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. Whether you play guitar, bass, trumpet, harp, roads, circuit bend, speak and spell, Stompbox Sonic will work with you to find the right effects to fit your project. I, you know, had mentioned that I kind of popped up to Boston a couple of weeks ago, got to hang out with them. They were great. I'm playing my pedal. It is fabulous. They picked it out for me, basically, based on everything that I was looking for, um, other pedals that I'd wanted to try. I didn't even know I wanted to try it, and it came home with me. So they could do the same for you. They'll find something for you. They are great. Check out stompboxonic.com for more. Last but not least, thanks to Holcomb Guitars. Nick Holcomb builds beautiful custom guitars to your specifications and has a mobile guitar repair setup as well. He'll come to you if you're in Rhode Island or Massachusetts. He'll fix your guitar. He'll, you know, pick it up, drop it off, or do it right on the spot. Nobody does that, and Nick does that, and he is great. He um, has set up and repaired a number of my own instruments and does a great job. I, I trust him to, uh, to do what needs to be done, and he will do it well. Um, Nick is also just like going to treat you like a regular human in the world. He, <laughs> uh, who deserves respect and obviously that's important. So please, uh, check out Holcomb Guitars on Insta Instagram or holcombguitars.com. All right. As always, you can follow along with Midriff between episodes on Instagram and Facebook at Midriff Podcast. And a quick note that my audio gets a little bit weird in a couple of spots in this episode, um, but I tried my best to fix it up, so hopefully it won't be too noticeable. So yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Here we are. Technology, right? With that, let's get into my interview with Glad to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you joining me from Berlin. Yeah, and this was our first warm weather day of 
the season. So it's, this is going to be a good call, clearly. You're, you're in a good warm weather. Nice. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, cool. So for people who, for some reason, might not know who you are, can you introduce yourself, uh, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Sure. So my name is Sky. On stage, I go by Sky Deep. This part of my name has changed many times. My last name begins with a D. It used to be disco because I was all about celebrating life. Then it became deep when disco got in the way of my DJ work. <laughs> but because I don't <laughs> were really you no longer disco. celebrating life? What happened? <laughs> I'm still celebrating life. But in a okay, I was like, way. I just wanted to check because <laughs> I didn't want to have to do some sort of intervention. So you know, I'm glad we're cl- making that clear. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, so I'm. I like to call myself a multimedia artist these days because mm-hmm. I really do a lot of different things. Though the foundation of my work, the basis of it is music. Everything, you know, from playing instruments to working with electronics and programming and software. I also studied audio engineering quite some time ago and been working in studios on and off for some years. So those are the foundations. But I also mm-hmm. love to work with visuals. I, If I feel like it, I'll pick up a paintbrush. Wow. Um. <laughs> it's just like that. Yeah. yeah. So that's, <laughs> Whatever's feeling right at the time, kind of. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. Some of it is just about returning to my true essence. And so mm-hmm. when I think about what did I do when I was my most happiest and when was I most happy as a child? So I think about what was I doing as a young person? Well, every time I want to get back to who I am, I, I do something that made me happy then. And guess what? It makes me happy now, too. I think that's a good motto for life generally. That's that's really useful. And I think adults, there becomes this point where you're just like, well, you can't do those things anymore because you're an adult and you have responsibilities. And it's like people just don't have that joy, the fun, you know, they're like, we have to shut that down, you know, in order to be an adult. And that's not that's no way to live. No. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to list off a few things that I have here from you. So you are, so you sort of touched on some of this, but I forgot to say my pronouns. I'm sorry. Please. Uh, Oh yeah. She, her, and occasionally sir. Perfect. All right. So, so electronic music, guitar, sound engineer, filmmaker, festival curation, you have your own clothing line. You list yourself as a MIDI musical director of which I have many questions. What does that even mean? First of all, you're a professor. Like, so I have all these questions. Let's dig in on a few of these, right? So like, okay, because I have, this is one of my questions. What is a MIDI musical director? (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't coin the term. It was either way. I want all of the information. Sure. Sure. (laughs) So when I got hired to originally play guitar for Peaches during the previous tour, not the upcoming one, but it was the only one Peach show, which we called Oops. So for the Oops show, it was quite a large band and and a a very intricate stage setup. So we had two guitars, we had three laser harps. Hold up. I'm already excited about the keytars, but what is a laser harp? It's, you know, (laughs) it's a very flashy sampler device that is triggered by interrupting the laser beams. So I think, what is it? We have five or six laser beams shooting upward. Uh, Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And 
it, the cool thing about them is the way you can program them is uh, depending on the distance from the laser source, you can do modulations, you know, filters and, and cool things like that. What? Uh, even aside from just <laughs> doing the uh, sample triggers. But yeah, it's a lot wow. of fun and it looks really cool, but it's, it's tough to play. I can actually. only imagine. Yeah. Temperamental here. But I didn't build those per se. Actually, okay. Connor, who toured with Peaches for many years, is sort of like he was our technical director. And so I worked very closely with Connor in translating aspects of the show that couldn't always be played live by every musician. We had a 12 person band. Yet still, you know, with this kind of e electro clash type of music, yeah. there's a lot of electronic elements that you just cannot create with uh, a live instrument. Yep. So I was basically a combination of utility musician slash background singer performer slash playback engineer <laughs> oh while <God>. being in <laughs> rehearsals and having to reprogram this and that and make sure this is connected to that. And... Mm -hmm you know, making sure that the final playback file, which we used Ableton, mm -hmm. was sending all the proper MIDI info as well as the audio info to front of house. Yeah. Yikes. And the clicks wow. in the, the in ears for everybody. Right. And so, and were you also playing guitar while you were performing or, I was playing uh, and guitar. then also like being like thinking i'm like imagining where all the places where your brain is at that yeah. point during an actual performance it is pretty wild i had to play guitar but not on every song so some songs i played guitar some songs mm -hmm. i finger drummed on my mpc sampler got it got it just like one of the drummers we had three drummers and then me on finger drums sometimes i would play guitar sometimes i would play laser harps sometimes i would just be singing backgrounds and dancing <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then I'll, but always i had to make sure that the cues happened so mm -hmm. it was also really paying attention to like timing of like how the show should run yeah how much rehearsal time does something like that require oh wow yeah let's just say when everybody else was having a break <laughs> i don't know where i was i was in space somewhere but i was getting it done it takes yeah, many hours. I mean, those these were yeah, easily 10, 12 hour days. At some point, you just stop counting because right. you just have to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually really a lot of fun. It was everything that I know and love, like everything from performing to the tech and the brainy stuff. Yeah. To guitar, to electronics, to vocals. Like I literally got to do everything that i love to do in one job and I, it was the best time of my life that's awesome that's i'm excited on your behalf just hearing you light up talking about it because it seems like such a beautiful marriage of all of those things like that's so awesome <laughs> yeah so so the so you're doing obviously a, a number of other things and i promise i'm going to come back to them but the other question i have so what are you teaching right now so you you teach yeah uh as well so one class that I've been teaching for quite some time, I teach live sound for the music business mm -hmm. students. I also taught that for the music production students last year, which is kind of like a level up. Mm -hmm. I also coach performance. So that shows up in many different ways throughout the college. I did study uh, theater, like officially, like 
some time yeah. ago. So the combination of music and stage and understanding the like the front of the scenes and behind the scenes of everything mm-hmm. puts me in a unique position to coach students who are trying to find their way, make their way. So totally that as well as I teach music business for the music production students. So one, a tech class for music Got business yeah. and then music business for the techies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're really tying it all together for people. <laughs> you're like, this is everything right here. I'm doing it all. <laughs> that, that's so cool. So yeah, I was just curious as like, because you have so many different skills, like which, where that landed exactly for, for the actual coursework that you were doing. So most of the work that you're kind of focused on right now, it sounds like, like, or not, I'm not even going to say most, that's not even true, but I know you're, uh, uh, if people found you on YouTube, for example, right now, they might find a lot of like the work that you're doing. That's like around electronic music, mm-hmm. which seems to be sort of like your main musical focus right now. Is that a fair yeah, statement? I think because of <laughs> just living in Berlin, it's, uh, yeah. it's kind of a regional ch- uh, change that I made. I made this choice when I moved from New York to focus mm-hmm. on electronics more than on the live musicianship. And when did you move to Berlin? 2014, August. Got it. Yeah. So, so that makes sense. This all seems logical. So, so that seems to be like your main focus right now, but what, so if we go backwards a little Mm -hmm. bit, so if you're spending a lot of time in the electronic space, obviously you do guitar, background in theater, all of this stuff. What was your first experience or introduction sort of to gear? How did you get excited about it in the first place? Well, my father's a musician. He's a gearhead. So it really goes way back to when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But when I kind of came into my own, because I didn't grow up with him all my life, I would say this happened back when I was living in LA, Mm -hmm. starting to do, like, I I was writing songs. And I needed stuff to work with because... uh, like mm-hmm. I used to make songs with a cousin of mine who had like a Casio keyboard when we were like, you know, in our early teens. And that was fun. Yep. But then when I wanted to do my own thing, I was kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. And I would always end up writing songs and like being the vocalist of like a band or something. And somebody else, I'd be like, can you play it kind of like this? Bam, bam, bam. You know, and they'd be like, like, what? I'd be like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I'm going to learn an instrument now. Um, yes. Well, let me play the laser harp for you and uh, we'll work it out. <laughs> yeah. So I started out like a little bit with like garage bands and stuff like that. And then eventually I decided I wanted to get into hip hop. And that's when I started to learn about the MPC 2000. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> very nostalgic for me to think of that machine. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it started off slowly, but that's when it started. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, we're talking like 96. <laughs> See, that's, so this is the thing. Cause I'm like, I can, I had an MPC 500 for, a, let's say a number of years. Never, I mean, I didn't put in the time, first of all, I, I realized that, but also like, I just couldn't get my brain wrapped around it. Could not figure it out. And this is with YouTube videos. So like, I can't. Being in a situation where you're like basically having to figure it out, maybe having a manual, maybe not like that is just breaks my brain open a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, fortunately, like this type of working with this instrument in particular was very much kind of a community thing, you know, so it's not like I had to just like take it in bits and figure it out. Like, 
sure. I'm hanging out with people. I'm looking over their shoulder. Actually, that is one of the thing. I'm actually pretty good at like watching and then doing. That's awesome. That's another yeah. reason why I'm just such a, a big lover of YouTube in general is because that's yep. kind of before YouTube was a thing. That's what I would do. I would literally just watch people ask a quick question and then mm-hmm. next thing you know, I'm kind of doing it. Yeah. You're just kind of absorbing it. Yeah. And able to like pick that up, pick it up that way. That's, that's super yeah. useful. Yeah. Yeah. And were you interested in technology otherwise at the time or was it mostly just focused in the music uh, area? Yeah. I have uh, for a long time, I had a really big interest in technology. I used to, uh, do you, I think, what was the name of this shop? Do you remember a place called Circuit City? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. I forgot so about my that. Family, yeah. You know, I was nerdy kid. Uh, I was like, can you please buy me a circuit board from Circuit City so I can try and program an LED light, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. I had a soldering iron and yeah, I would just love any chance I got to try things like this. I really like to draw, but in drawing, like I, I got interested in things like industrial drawing and things like this. I took courses in school mm. for it. And I just, yeah, like I was just more the type of person of, hey, there's this thing I want to do or this thing that I think is really cool. How can I decode that and figure out how to do it myself? So even if it was like uh, cassette tapes back in the day, it's like, I want to make it look professional or a CD jacket Mm -hmm. or whatever. I want to make it look like what they have in the store. I would literally, if I had to, hand draw every little thing, even the little trademark symbols and the little publishing (laughs) symbols. I would draw it exactly because I was, uh-huh. this is me seeing the dream and visualizing it and making it happen somehow. So this happened in both tech as well as in art. Yeah. Yeah. Just a real like absorbing what's around you and wanting to like figure out how to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems, seems like a reasonable place where things are sort of lining yeah. up. <laughs> so, so that was sort of your first experience with gear was the MPC 2000. Yeah. And so you obviously play guitar as well. So when did that kind of come that into That actually things? came before the MPC because m- since my father's a guitarist, okay. like it, it was something mm-hmm. that was interesting for me. And when I was playing in these bands, I would always kind of wish for always a second guitar. I never wanted just one guitar in the band. I always wanted two. And I just got lucky one day. Actually, somebody gave me an old guitar that they didn't need anymore. It was broken up a little bit, but it worked. Yeah. And so that would be the first but then yeah what's the what are the age what are the ages of these things that are coming up yeah for you? i mean i i would say w- when i got my first electric guitar i was about 19 yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah yep. and then with the mpc i probably didn't get my hands on that till i was around 22 or 23 got it yeah yeah interesting so so yeah so you have this like it, it sounds like you had a lot of experience with like kind of electronic stuff, but it was sort of like slowly trickling and leading to this, the actual implementation and, and getting to yeah. use it for things, which is cool. So for for your current setup, which obviously if you go over to your YouTube, you can see some of that. But can you explain a little bit about like kind of your main tools that you use now? Yeah. So eventually I came back to the MPC is one of my core pieces. Now I have the MPC live and yeah, it's great. It's portable. I love it. I also only just recently got the Ableton Push 2, to which Ah, I I hadn't planned on Mm -hmm. getting it, but some circumstances worked out where 
I got a really lucky break with that. And so I, it's between those two, they give each other a run for the money. Mm -hmm. I love them both. And now I use mm -hmm. them together. I have a circuit mono nice. station, which is a analog mono. I have electron model cycles, which is a small but power packed groove box. <laughs> oh, I love this thing. <laughs> and and mm -hmm. as much as I talk about the other, other boxes, this one, I probably use the most out of all of them because it's the most easy to just pick up and jam on and make whole beats. See, this, that was sort of my question with that, that like, because I know some people talk about how the workflow or whatever is different with electron devices versus other things that maybe like people might be used to with like an MPC or whatever Roland or something like that. So it, does it feel as somebody who is like deep in the MPC world to like pop into that? Was that a challenge at, for you? At or? first, but I'm definitely mm -hmm. the type of person that reads the manual before I even buy. The oh, wow. So yeah, I watched yep. so many videos and read so much about it before I got it that as soon as it was in my hands, I knew what to do. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I like the level of uh, thorough research that, <laughs> <laughs> that is clear here. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's awesome because it seems like something that is a very powerful device that's maybe not totally overwhelming. Does that seem yeah. for, for people who are maybe newer to I that kind of... I haven't tried of the, uh, the bigger, like more flagship boxes from Electron. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of menu diving that can be necessary to do certain things. And that it can get a little brainy or heady. But I specifically mm -hmm. was looking for gear that would have me feel like a musician. Yeah, because actually when I moved from the U.S., I sold off a lot of like my musical gear. Like, mm. you know, my beloved, I had a Mesa Boogie 50 watt rectifier amp. Oh, that was mm -hmm. my baby. You know? And, you know, I was selling that yeah. going overseas. I can't take that with. And I, I just no. went to this whole, <laughs> like, very portable lifestyle. That and and I spent sense, yeah. so much time after a while mm -hmm. in my laptop, in my computer, with little controllers here and there, that I, I felt like I lost my sense of musicianship. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why I started getting these different sort of tactile devices where I can really just bang on it and make stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So... So yeah, these are some of the things I have. I also have a Yamaha DTX-12 Multi, which is a, it's kind of like a SPDX, but it's the Yamaha version. Oh, okay. And an old studio mate left that behind. And so I don't know, I just took some drum lessons. I was like, I will now learn how to play this. That seems yeah. fun. I actually played it at a cabaret <laughs> show. It, and it came really in handy. And it's a nice like visual yeah. to watch, you know, actually physically hitting something. Does that take samples yes. too or no? Yes. You have to be mm -hmm. like really careful mm -hmm. with cool. your file management because it doesn't have a lot of onboard storage. But yeah, you can just swap things out like with a USB and things like this. And actually the onboard sounds are pretty good. They're pretty good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in general, nice. I would say like that's the, the core of what I'm working with. And then of course with Ableton Live and the push, you know, it's really limitless. And the truth is, I haven't scratched the surface yeah. of most of these pieces of gear. I, I told myself, I'm not buying mm -hmm. any more because then I'll never get to learn them deeply because I'll always be jumping around from box yeah. to box. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's real. <laughs> that's that seems very real. I feel like I'm like, I didn't learn it immediately. I'll find mm-hmm. another one <laughs> that will be easier for me to learn immediately. And then it doesn't happen. Uh, I think that's a, that makes a lot of sense. That's a smart decision. <laughs> uh, but you're also really good at explaining things to other people. So it's like it feels like you are able to learn the things that you learn to your core sort of but also i feel like what sometimes what happens with people like when that happens is that they forget how to Mm -hmm. explain things but you seem to be able to still do that do you have a sense as to why that might be well uh (laughs) i I always wish somebody could explain it to me that you know before Mm -hmm. but i really i really really this might sound you know frustrating for some people who maybe that's not how they work but for me i really do read the manuals and i i watch yeah. so many other people's videos and i read yep. in the forums and i love to research so when like i just can't handle it if i haven't figured yep. it out and so the yeah. whole reason i started even making videos was because sometimes i would research something and i couldn't find the answer and i thought i you know i'm consuming mm-hmm. so much free content it's time for me to contribute that's yeah. nice yeah, but as, as far yeah. as like, mm-hmm. like I do think that my ability to explain has improved along with the last four years of teaching at a university, and actually mm-hmm. having taken certifiable courses within the higher education system to learn techniques on how to help people yeah. of diverse learning styles learn. Yeah. I mean, learning to uh, yeah. learning to teach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's interesting, too, because I was I've been thinking about this a lot. As I, and I mentioned to you earlier, like that I've been sort of researching more gear in the electronic realm, specifically around like, you know, drum machines and samplers and trying to find ones that are like simple to use, but also can like do the things I need them to do. And I I did a call out to my instagram like just asking for suggestions from people i was like i'm going between these couple you know what do you think and one of the ones that i had mentioned just because i kept watching people for like a, I was like i need an inexpensive thing that like is easy to use and you know maybe has some uh, sampling options potentially and and so many people are like the po33 po33 like everybody loves it on the internet, all the videos that I watch, people are like, this is the best. It's so tiny and so cute and can do so much. And I was like, this is great. But I'm watching people on these videos. It's like, I, first of all, I can't see what they're doing. I have no idea what's happening. Nothing is labeled. <laughs> and so I'm just like, how do people do this? And it's like, if you don't already have the background and the understanding of like how that stuff functions, coming into that without some sort of like props or additional information it feels kind of intimidating and i actually had a couple of people who specifically said or who like sent me messages who were like i think it's a bunch of dudes over there who are running this because they're trying it's like they're it's so unintuitive there's nothing going on and there's no explanation for how anything works and i was like oh that's interesting that they specifically noted that because i wouldn't have thought of that necessarily but it did occur to me that like most of the people who are doing videos are people who are already like really good at this stuff. You know what I mean? So the ability to describe things and explain how things work is sometimes not as clear this as it should true. be. Yeah. <laughs> or could be. So, where, which is why I appreciate what you're doing because Thank it seems you. a lot clearer. Yeah, um, I didn't realize. Yeah. Like actually, 
I started to get feedback from people who watch. And then that's only then did I realize that, oh, people seem to appreciate my approach to explaining things. Because even before I mm-hmm. had actually become a teacher, I was doing maybe of a lesser production quality, but still like, I was like, hey, I have this Motu interface and it has this really yes. difficult to understand routing matrix. And there yeah. were no videos from the company or from users about it. And I, I did something and yeah. Motu ended up reposting it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Cool. But in general, yeah, I, I do it because I I just love talking talking about the process. Yeah. Yeah. I I noted how much you love it because I watched a video where you and this is probably an older video, but you were, you literally were like, I'm trying to figure out my live setup. This is a number of years ago. And you're like, here is a literal (laughs) spreadsheet (laughs) as to how you, how I figured out my setup. And you had like all, it was so like organized and you're like, and I'm like, oh yeah, you, this might be what's required to be able to actually figure out how to structure things for, you know, when you're handling multiple different pieces of gear to get them together. That's hilarious. (laughs) Yes. I'm a spreadsheet person. I I actually drive that point home to my live sound students all the time. In fact, sometimes I start out Mm -hmm. class and I say, okay, you're throwing a rave in the middle of a forest, but on the main road, there's a police yes. uh, station, and then there's a cafe, and then the residence is over there. Draw me a picture of how you are going to get all of your equipment to the location, and where are you going to position your speakers, and, you know, draw it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much. (laughs) It's like a word problem for live sound. And it's real. Like you have to, how do you apply it? How do you actually do this thing? Because it's like, people are like, well, they just did the thing and it's there and it just looks like magic. But you're like, no, somebody has to figure that out. Somebody has to make the spreadsheet. Somebody has to draw it. Somebody had, you know, like all of that. So yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I love this. Okay. So this is a re- slightly related follow-up question, which is very general, but I just need to know. The Zoom issue, electronic musicians, a multi-stomp. Not actually. I'm like, why every single electronic video that I watch, like that somebody's talking about, everyone the, has a multi-stomp. Yeah, yeah the CDR, yeah, the multi-stomp. Yes. It is a magical little device. It is inexpensive. Mm-hmm. It is tiny Mm -hmm. and it really, Mm -hmm. you know, aside from it not having the ability to have an expansion pedal or, you know, something like that. Other than that, it's perfect for the tabletop situation. It fits in a little tiny crevice of your bag. Yeah. I I bought mine for something like 70 euros secondhand off of like what's like the equivalent of Craigslist out here. Yeah. And the oh reverbs are really good. Like, like again, oh. I did my, like, deep nerd research on it, and people were comparing mm-hmm. it to the Eventide boxes and saying, Whoa. I just <laughs> did an A-B test wow. of the Shimmer reverb from the Eventide, and through this little teeny mm-hmm. tiny little blue multi-stomp, 
and I couldn't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Wow. Yeah. It's so funny because it's like, I feel like I was like, they were, I knew that they existed, but hadn't really thought about them that much. Like as a guitarist, I was like, I I just don't really do multi-effects generally that much. And so I didn't really pay that close of attention. But then I started watching all these videos, like, you know, with people doing, you know, jams or whatever. And I was just like, literally every video, somebody's got that multi-stomp. And I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like, it's just like, it's right there. It's on your, you can, it has every sound you'd ever want and probably some that you've never thought of. And you can just like throw it in, throw it on there and like, you know, mess up your sound and make it sound cool. When Um, when I was using it for my live sets, like I could make a, like a different pedal board for every single song on my set and just page through. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) sold yeah i'm gonna have to get one of those (laughs) but i was just like what is going on it's like a secret that i didn't i somehow missed out but it's 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 tough Um, now because all the newer boxes you you can uh i just i just call everything a box i guess but with the with the newer ones (laughs) it is a huge benefit this to be able to adjust the midi with uh usb that's a big deal got it my both my multi effects like okay so I have that multi stomp but then I also have my uh, HD five hundred pod from line six the first generation yep, yeah. HD five hundred um, uh-huh. it's kind of it's kind of starting to fall apart on me or I'm starting to notice the difference between this yeah. and, and the newer pedals yeah but I will say that since I still okay. am able to do things with uh, USB versus MIDI that's what I'm missing with the multi stomp but. You know, when you're just doing the live yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense. The what? So you're We didn't even talk yeah. about your guitar. You have an SG, right? Is that correct? Yeah. OK. And that's your main. Yeah, two, I have or? the Tanglewood basic, very basic acoustic at home, acoustic electric. But my mm-hmm. I uh, used to use a PV T60. That, Ooh, that was, those are good. I really love that are. guitar. Like Ugh. it was my dad's yeah. and then he let me have it for a while. But when I started traveling, I could only take one with me. Yeah. And that one yeah, probably weighed twice really as much. really heavy and it had the original <laughs> case from like yeah. back then. Yeah. Oh, is it the chainsaw case? Like the, the molded yes. plastic? Those are. But I yeah. loved the yeah. way it but felt also- in my fretting hand. And, and it mm-hmm. just had so many expandable capabilities with the sound. Like I could kind of go almost mm-hmm. a Gibson direction or a Fender direction depending and then flip it to single coil and do fun stuff with that and it's just so versatile yeah but i love my sg too that's janet you know we can't play with janet no i mean no nothing against the sg but you know (laughs) uh yes there's a place for everything they're both good So I want to start talking a little bit about sort of some of your stuff around your gear and and identities and like how that connects to how basically what your experiences have been like related to like gender identities, those sorts of things uh, intersecting with gear. So you're in a bajillion different spaces with this. Well, where the conversation first probably started for me was when I first started working in, in, in music studios and people would always be like, oh, this is it's a it's a girl you know or whatever <laughs> and i'll be just like yeah you uh-huh. want to get some work done <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> let's focus um, your people but the beauty is mm-hmm. like some of my early experiences have been more from a place of just like oh okay like yeah maybe a little skepticism at first like can you know can you mm-hmm. do this to 
I would always uh, convince, mm-hmm. I believe, and people felt confident and that was good. But when I started trying to gig as a guitar player in New York, a, mm. a town in which there are many conservatory trained musicians and uh-huh. I'm soul taught, I'm church taught, I'm family taught, you know, or, you know, t- you know, I mm-hmm. play by ear. And so, yeah, okay. Sometimes I'm going to be real. Sometimes it was the Afro they were after, y- you know, oh. and then I would have to <laughs> prove that, yeah. I, you know, but the Afro might get me yeah. in the door, but it didn't matter because the other people, the musicians that I was either auditioning against or playing with, yeah, I experienced a lot of friction with some of the uh, patriarchal representing guitar players out in the world or musicians. I have to say, I had one really amazing experience where the band that brought me on was pretty queer. And, but the music director that they mm-hmm. hired was not. And he was hating on me real hard. And in the end, they fired him. Kept me. I mean, and he was very skilled, but he was very hard on me. So that's like, that was a nice affirming moment and a a victorious moment, which is nice. It's Mm -hmm. like the the more that we can support each other and provide space for each other, you know, there is hope because even if at that time I maybe was not up to the level that this particular music director wanted, Mm -hmm. I go, wow, you know, but I just, (laughs) I was just on the road with, queer icon peaches, you know, <laughs> doing the yeah. things. Yeah. And it was that type of support that was ringing through. Yeah. I even used to run a, a blog just talking about what it's like, you know, what's the difference between a male, you know, he- uh, the cis hetero male musician and somebody like me. And so as a research, I would go mm-hmm. to events and I would study the people that I worked with and auditioned with. And I would go, oh, actually... The only difference is the level of cockiness in which they step into the effing project, (laughs) you know? And so as an experiment, so I was writing about this, but then as an experiment, I would put on that hat of them. I would put on that hat and say, now do I play better now that I've put that hat on? And I realized actually I did. And it became, I decided Mm. to flip it into a tool that says, okay, when I get really nervous, when I'm second guessing myself, when everything that I've been told the majority of my life about me being less than or second rate compared to that idea or that identity, I have these strikes against me. So I walk into the room with this heaviness on my shoulders and now I can't play the way I know Mm -hmm. I can play. Or maybe I didn't even know I could. But like, if I didn't know that I could play like that, then what I had to do was, at least as this experiment called, is I had to tell myself, you are the best mamma jamma on this planet. You know you got it, <laughs> you know? And, and I would just like overdo it, but like to myself, not to anybody else. And I performed better. And to me, mm-hmm. that was like the study. And I was just like, you know what? From now on, rub two guitar picks in my pocket, tell, my, tell myself, I am the ish. And guess what? Then I was like in those moments, as long as I don't become a douche, you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I but I like the I do like this like visual of you like pumping yourself yeah. up like eye of the tiger style like in your head even just like getting ready <laughs> and I think that is a real I mean like when you think about the concept of like stereotype threat for example like it's a real thing that people experience like there is research that shows when people come into the room and you know they have this perception of how like they're you know other people are, are expecting them to fail or not fail but like not perform as well like it's like sitting on your shoulders and you're just like you're like in that process knocking it off your shoulder like I'm not going to have this weight here. I'm just going to perform like everything's regular and I'm awesome because I am. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't, you know, it, it, it didn't always work, <laughs> right? But it did show me that it really started sure. kind of with the perspective. So mm -hmm. I still, of course, you know, being black, being queer and being becoming of age, I experience a lot of things around all of that, you know, and traveling the world, it doesn't change. It's everywhere, but uh -huh. I, I find that I just have to always like, it just depends on what a person's individual goals are. But like for me, like I have certain career goals. Mm -hmm. So I just know that if I want to mm -hmm. up my income in some ways, then sometimes I step outside of the queer bubble because sometimes I'm in the queer bubble. Sometimes I'm dealing with community events and mm -hmm. nonprofit organizations, NGOs, and that's cool. And where I can, you know, I try to work with these organizations, but sometimes if I need to pay certain bills, I need to also be able to be in other uh, parts of the world. And in that I've yeah. just chosen for myself, because this business is definitely about people relations. I've chosen for myself to know when to fight certain battles and when not. And at the mm -hmm. end of the day, it always comes back to how I feel about me because it actually, mm -hmm. I can't change other people's minds about me. And I think there was a time where I, I really wanted to like convince people that like they should hang out with me and I should be invited for whiskey too. You know, <laughs> but sometimes uh -huh. it's just like, you know what? Yes. No, y'all go ahead. You know, because there's another project out there where we're, we're going to have us some drinks together or, you know, a good old jam mm -hmm. session in a, in a ha ha together. And it just doesn't happen with everyone. And that's okay. As long as I'm getting my job done, guess what? Mm -hmm. The calls come because I deliver. Well, and it seems like you, so, I mean, this could go in a lot of directions, but one of the things I was thinking about is that it, it seems like one of the benefits that you have is that you are like, even if like, as a guitarist or something, you're not like classically trained or whatever, like you're able to pull from this wealth of all these other things. And that makes you that that is a benefit that, you know, if you're not, you know, I, I and pull pull from these other things, meaning both your skills, but also like your experiences and identities like that is providing something new and different that perhaps other people who are classically trained might not have. And that's going to like, if people don't recognize that, like, they're the ones who are going to lose out on it. Yeah. So I think, but, you I know, know, I I, <laughs> I also want to mm -hmm. just, just in case there's somebody who's listening who is classically trained, you know, but, you know, sure. but is not sure about getting out there. I just want to say there is space for everyone out there. There's something for you. Like, and 
if anybody would be listening and thinking, I'm not ready, I still have to improve at this or that, uh, 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 guess mm. what? One day, I made a website, and I said I was a guitar player for hire. <laughs> and then <laughs> I was considered in some cases, and then also not considered in other cases. There is a fit for everyone and for every type of musician if mm -hmm. you would like to put yourself out there. So I've met some people who I look at them and I go, you are the most magical guitar. I will worship your pick. Can I please have your pick? Sign mm -hmm. it. You don't have to be famous. I just <laughs> want to know and remember that I know you because you're so good. And that same person later would be like, yeah, but I'm not ready for gigging. You know, and I'd be like, are you serious? Yeah, if I can gig, mm -hmm. for sure you can gig. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that. I mean, it's a great point. I mean, it really is. It's like there are different needs, like different musical needs, different ways that you can interact with other musicians and that might fill different, yeah, fill different roles at different places. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. Thank you for that motivation that I feel like I myself need regularly. So <laughs> that's great. So, all right. So I want to talk a little bit more about like how things come together for your like songwriting process, because you do demonstrate some of that stuff in your, in your videos. But I, if you can just like briefly describe how things sort of usually like when you're like, I'm going to do some songwriting or I'm just like feeling it right now. Like what does that yeah, process look like? You for know, you? I, I, that always feels like an experimental process for me. Every time I reapproach it, it feels like an experiment. Mm -hmm. I, my original sort of most organic way of writing a song has usually come from me sort of hearing something in my head and then trying to recreate it in real life. Sometimes it could start yeah. with a melody or sometimes it can start with a type of rhythm. But in that rhythm, I might hear, I hear the drum already, but it's a certain timbre of drum. And so the mm -hmm. only way to, I, I just have to make it. Other times when I, when it's coming from just a process of me going, okay, so I'm in the studio, I guess I should do something. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> I just generally like to start with, the drum beat, usually that's where I start. So sometimes I mm -hmm. maybe work from kits that I've already built, or sometimes I start from scratch and build a new kit off of a certain concept. Mm -hmm. What I mean by concept is like, yeah, sometimes I'm thinking of like, cause I do work for like sound design for films and stuff. So if I'm right, working on- We didn't even on, get into that yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like, so like yeah. if I'm working on something that has like a car scene, uh, like a car garage scene mm -hmm. in it, then I might specifically just dig out samples that sound like gear mechanic sounds and then I'll make mm. like a drum kit out of it or something. That sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. fun. And so some people really like to do field recordings of this stuff. Yeah. I'm not mm -hmm. against that sort of thing, but I just mm -hmm. say, you know, there's so many really awesome sample libraries that for me, I'm not big into field recording. But I am mm -hmm. into being inspired by what I hear out in the field and yep. then sort of doing a, something off of that inspiration. Right. So, yeah, sometimes it's like that. And then and in some cases, because I'm DJing and I'm in a sort of like electronic music environment, sometimes it's genre based. Sometimes it's like, mm -hmm. OK, this is the general structure of a techno beat 
these are the characteristics of it. So I will go that direction today. Or yeah. I would like to start with this tempo today, which this tempo is often in this genre of music. So let's do that. I might yeah. do that. So you might have like a starting point on which that's coming from. And it, the starting point might be different, but it is sort of like the general uh, guiding <laughs> guiding point of for where, for where you're going. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Yeah. So like when you do your videos on your channel, how do you decide when you're going to record or not? Yeah. This has been tough. To be honest, I haven't done a video in some months now. Mm -hmm. because I've been reaching out kind of within my community to get some help with shooting and with editing mm -hmm. and stuff because mm -hmm. I really have so many audio jobs on now that it used to yeah. be that that I would just turn on the camera and I, I can still do that like now I have a lot of like I have a, a couple of yeah. cameras at home studio desk and then at the studio I have some GoPros so I could just turn on a start filming but because i decided to have a like a show format on youtube mm -hmm. now it's more important than ever that i cover certain points and i really need mm -hmm. to script everything out and that takes time yeah so it used to be yeah. that i would just turn on the cameras but then guess what it might take me two weeks to edit <laughs> because yeah. i have so much stuff and then i have to make something out of it that's co yeah. you know coherent so yeah right now actually I am, I've actually written out a ton of potential episodes. I've also set up both my workspaces in a way that I should be able to just turn things on and get started. And now it's just sort of fine tuning with my newly in the process of being built team to become more consistent. So the ultimate goal is record four episodes in a matter of a day or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like and batch. then somebody else can help yeah. me edit, and then I can get back yeah. to work. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You know, doing some of that too, but it's hard. It is hard to like have things set up to be able to do it like on the fly, and then the editing does take a trillion years. So yeah, and I but I do appreciate like being able to see people's process a little bit too, even if it is edited, because obviously we're not all going to sit here with you for five hours while you're doing <laughs> <laughs> as much as we would like to, uh, you know, watch that process happen. Um, yeah, it's cool. So thank you for sharing that, even if it takes a long time. No problem. No problem. <laughs> I love 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 it. And. Mm -hmm. It's actually been the source of new jobs coming in and things like that, too. So it's been really. Yeah. 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 And it, it, it sounds like I mean, so you're you're doing that. You're, you know, doing all these other things. You are a filmmaker as well. So you have like you've done some of your own videos and then you're doing some of the YouTube videos. You've also written and directed your own film and were in it as well. And so so. In addition to your musical work, you're doing all of this this stuff. I'm curious about like so so your film is a uh, queer porn, and I'm wondering what that specific work like what that importance is to you to be creating that kind of work. Yeah, yeah, I would even extend it to say like the way we're talking about it out here is we even call it like queer feminist porn. Uh, I was gonna say that, but I didn't want to present. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah. think um, one of the important things to point out is that in this type of filmmaking process, we are making sure that everybody has a say kind of in how it's going to go. There is none of mm -hmm. this like I'm the boss relationship type of things that, that happen there. 
And yeah, this is a collective process, at least the way that Mm -hmm. we did it to making a film like this, which involves so many sensitivities and vulnerability. I come Mm -hmm. from a very modest home and (laughs) I'm the most modest out of probably majority of my family in the sense of, I don't, I can't even change my shirt in front of my own dang mom, you know? Yeah. So... So, well, I'd, I'd heard you talk about church upbringing, so I was curious how that was going to play in with this, but this all, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was, a well, you know, okay, first of all, when I moved to Berlin, I had my second adolescence, mm-hmm. and so, mm-hmm. a, as a lot of people do, you know, being a U.S. person and then moving to Berlin during non-pandemic times were absolutely wild. You're like, wait, I can do that? Okay, then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh but um it was a choice by me of just being in the moment and being like when am i ever going to have a chance to be this free again and just be creative out of a pure passion project with friends being slightly naughty but you know what it's okay it's not really naughty it's just life you know Uh and being able to shape the narrative exactly how i wished instead of yeah it being somebody else's thing and i'm just in there somehow so i always wanted to play a vampire in a film like back when i used to audition for films when i you know was in theater whatever i always that's just that was a dream of mine and it just so Mm -hmm. happened i was uh going for a walk you know as people do here Like, listen, when I lived in New York, if somebody called me up and said, hey, let's go for a walk in the park, I would think you were asking me on a date. (laughs) No, out here, I came out here, people was called, you want to go for a walk? Okay. And so I was on a walk with a friend, just a casual walk, and we were in a cemetery. And it was like the oldest cemetery I'd ever seen. And there just happened to be this one mausoleum where the the glass was broken and you can kind of see inside. And it was spooky. Um, And like all the glass from the top was blue. So it was a sunny day. And so there was this blue light cast down onto the coffin Mm -hmm. of which appeared to be empty. (gasps) Uh, And I was just, could anybody uh, else see this? You know, and I was just like, it. I don't care if it was going to be on an iPhone. I was going to make a vampire movie and cast myself because probably I'm not going to get an agent and be cast in the next True Blood. So, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just kind of how it started. This was back in 2014, which was Mm -hmm. the year that I moved to Berlin, like. I like how you're like, I'm getting right on top of this. <laughs> yeah, I was just going for it. I, I yeah. had taken a Shibari, yeah. Shibari rope bondage uh, workshop in the local mm-hmm. queer bookstore. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I asked the person who was giving the workshop, who was a friend of a friend, would they want to be in the film or consult on the film or whatever? And mm-hmm. yeah, then I wrote this story from a U.S. context, having moved to Europe and make the story around it and fit it in with vampire, my own version of vampire folklore. Yeah. And, um, yes. 
almost as a fluke because I really just did it for fun. It ended up winning best feature film at uh, Porn Film Festival Berlin. And then next thing you know, I started playing all over the world in different festivals. I got flown to London. I got flown to Lisbon to talk about the film, to give workshops. And, you know, there really was a historical and a political strength within it. Like we say porn, but it was really like on the softer porn side of things, but it Mm -hmm. still was like, beyond r-rated kind of thing sure but yeah yeah i put some difficult uh subject matter in there in relation to identity and lynchings like my character became a Mm -hmm. vampire after having died by lynching Ooh, yeah Mm -hmm. and so there's a whole story around that and so people really wanted to talk about that a lot uh just the discourse for various film festivals and things and then they were like but how could you also include this like rope bondage and pleasurey things mixed with horrendous slavery times and i was just like well listen honey i'm just making a film i didn't make the film for you i made it for me (laughs) (laughs) but also it makes perfect sense in my mind like you you know you've just you know taken this thing that was was used for one thing and now you get to use it for what you want and that makes exactly and that's exactly exactly what it was yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense and i'm so glad that like you know you're you were able to to put that out there and i I feel like i've been thinking about this we were talking about this i i teach a gender studies class as well and so i've been thinking we were talking about like sex and intimacy in my last class and you know talking about like what porn does is porn as like a form of like what as sex education for a lot of folks and that so much of the mainstream porn is like you know (laughs) basically making people really unhappy everyone Mm -hmm. there's research showing everyone is unhappy because of mainstream porn so (laughs) unfortunately uh so having these altered like narratives around how you can talk about it and people who are a part of it are just so useful and i would like to know from from you like how you see that work kind of like intersecting with the other work that you do yeah i mean it's a huge intersection across everything that I do. I mean, first, right, the film was like a visual work, yep. but I also sound designed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I edited it too. Like I did everything kind of on it. And it was like the way I even ended up finishing the film because I got stuck partway through and I needed help mm-hmm. was by a, like a barter trade within our own sort of local queer economy, which was a friend needed some audio work done they couldn't pay like what my normal rate was so we worked it out where okay partial rate plus you can help me finish my film you know kind of thing Mm -hmm. we did Mm -hmm. stuff like that and then that just kind of carried on so like actually a lot of my early audio work as a trained audio engineer like was on set recording for various local queer porn like people need people they can feel comfortable around and so that was like i took some gigs like that early on and some post-production audio. And so now I'm still doing post-production audio for various queer and feminist porn films, as well as music design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For a lot of them. That's it's, Oh my, you're just like killing it across the board. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The, so this brings us sort of back and we're, we're closing up shop here. I promise. Uh, (laughs) But 
I, I in the video that you did with the spreadsheet, because I'm not going to stop talking about it. Uh, <laughs> I also saw you had written something about like how you have keywords about how you want. I don't know if it's like how you want to present yourself or how you want people to perceive you in the world. And there was I don't know if there were like five words and I, I don't remember all of them. But I remember the first one was like transformative or something like that. And so Which I'm wondering, video? I have to remember, I know now you have to find it, huh? I'm like, did I, do I still have it open? I don't know if I do. It was the one where you were talking about your live setup, like how I created my yeah, live setup before or my LA show back. I'm just, mostly I'm curious, like if it still holds up or if you have the different five words. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like I'm excited. I need to. Yeah. Yes. But this is generally how I, I approach things. Actually, I, just wrote the concept for my next live performance and people are probably a little overwhelmed because it's like a little mini thesis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in looking now that we're looking together at this uh, spreadsheet, yeah, uh, I think if people, <laughs> I know this is from like a number of years ago, but for some reason it, I just found it fascinating and there was like so much to dig into on it. Um, not from both the technical end, but also I feel like when having like a vision for like how you want to achieve your own goals and mm -hmm. like how you want people to perceive you, I can see like ha that as having an influence both in like the types of work that you choose, but also the, you know, way that you present yourself on like social media or something like that. So the, the first, the keywords that you had were transformative, unpredictable, deep, syncopated, funky, and technically solid. Do those things still hold up today? This was, what year was this? This was, yeah. let me find that first. I would say Let's, so. For context, that was, why isn't it showing me when it, oh, three years ago, three years ago. Yeah. We've had it, we've had a pandemic. Is it still the same? <laughs> I I really would say so. It sounds like me. Mm -hmm. Like if you said I'd said that last week, I would probably yeah. believe, yeah, I would believe that. I think now the only thing I could add to that is that I am looking to, in a way, like I used to be like very much like, okay, I don't want to put myself in a box. I don't want to pick mm -hmm. a genre. I'm everything. Yeah. But I can say that it's, it gets really exhausting trying to explain yourself to people. Uh huh. And you know, the truth is right now more than anything, I want my life to feel easier. Yeah. I don't need to prove to anybody how strong I am. I don't need to prove to anybody that I need to belong here or there or wherever. The only thing I need to prove to myself is that all the hard work and all the stuff that I fought through to get to this place was worth it enough that now I could actually breathe and have a little sigh moment um mm -hmm. and so e this even shows up in in my work and in in my productions or as i build live sets the key and most important element is fun yeah period <laughs> yeah yeah yep and i think it, and i that i think that was that's kind of why i wanted like we're as we're closing out here i think it's like thinking about all those things that you're doing through the lens of those things, through fun, through like creating a transformation, you know, all of that stuff is being sort of the through line through all the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that's just, it's smart it out loud sometimes. Like, <laughs> these are the things that I'm doing. And, uh, and as a person, like 
learned about all different things that you as a person are doing, like being like, how do they connect? And it's like, oh, well, it's right here. <laughs> this is how it connects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. So uh, if you were speaking to folks in the industry, in the music industry broadly, or people who are specifically doing stuff around gear, and they, they came to you and they're like, Sky, we want to like make the industry better. How can we do it? Related to gender identities, et cetera. What would you tell them? Pay equality is an important mm-hmm. thing to consider in all this. While it may be a nice gesture to make space for people, <laughs> uh huh. let's make sure that they can sustain their position in that space. To me, that's the most important one because, mm-hmm. you know, they, oh, I want to give you an opportunity. Well, <laughs> thank you. What kind of pay come along with that opportunity? Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. And I, and that's that's the thing, too, is like I feel like there is so much like kind of lip service around like that. It's like representation. But at what cost? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, who's 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 gaining in that situation? Sometimes yeah. people, you know, um, they might look at you like uh, just money hungry. It's like, no, I'm trying to sustain life. You know, I'm getting yeah. older. I'm not trying to be like scraping when I'm 80, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair. That is fair. Yeah. So, all right. So we're closing up for real now. How can people stay in contact with you? What's coming up? What, what do you want to, what do you want to tell people to, to check out as, uh, as we're leaving here? Yeah. Ooh. Um, I would say I am very excited about building community. My activism has turned more online, but also in a way that again, I'm, I'm encouraging fun and comfort and community, but mm-hmm in a way that that doesn't require an extensive amount of external funding or me bleeding. <laughs> yes. So yes. with that said, just check me out on Instagram, Sky Deep Life. If you're into streetwear, check out Sky Deep Threads and follow me on YouTube uh, because I do have some stuff coming up and I always announce it there. I, yeah, I have a mailing list, so... You can sign up for that if you choose, but everything is always going to be able to be announced through the YouTube or found through that. So I'm just making music. I'm planning on doing more shows and stuff. So if I'm in your city, come out and say hello. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just loved getting a chance to talk with Sky. She really is doing so much awesome stuff. It is kind of mind blowing. So check out her, uh, check out the show notes for all of her links to stay in touch. So today, if you are in the music gear or music product space, you might think that it, this is not highly connected to the <laughs> recent potential attacks on abortion access um, that are, you know, either planned um, or have already happened in Texas or other places. But even if you are pro-choice, the issue, you know, kind of might seem rather disparate. Like, why am I talking about this? Why is this important? Let me connect the dots for you. So I will start with a few musicians who have stated that they have had abortions, including Stevie Nicks, Ashley Judd, Nicki Minaj, Vanessa Williams, Lil' Kim. And you may have heard recently that uh, Phoebe Bridgers shared that she had an abortion just last year on tour. 
Stevie Nicks said of her experience, if I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure that there would have been no Fleetwood Mac, she said. There's just no way that I could have had a child then, working as hard as we worked constantly. I would have had to have walked away. First of all, I will set the stage by noting that I am saying this as a person who has been lucky to have never been in the position to need an abortion and who actually, TMI alert, had a hard time getting pregnant and, you know, it took about a year and a half and it was a very emotionally painful time. And, uh, you know, while we consulted with infertility doctors, we ended up finally having success after a pretty strict routine of like acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine diet. And, uh, you know, what was that, that? What made it happen? I have no idea. But after spending your entire life trying not to get pregnant, I will say that having that challenge can mess with your mind a bit. Anyway, all that to say that I recognize that all the feelings that folks have about having kids and whether and when they should have them is extremely personal. And, you know, some folks will say that having kids is selfish. Some, you know, will say that not having kids is selfish. Some can't have kids who want them, whether, you know, giving birth to them or not. Some will lose babies during miscarriage. The adoption process is hard and complicated for all involved and, you know, potentially expensive and exclusive. Some folks, you know, have kids who didn't want to, and that's hard for everyone involved as well. And that brings us to the issue at hand. So um, I had originally written this piece months ago uh, before, you know, last week's Supreme Court leak about the plans to overturn Roe versus Wade. And at the time, Texas law was sort of first being rolled back and shortly thereafter, several states followed. And unfortunately, you know, this might just be the beginning as rolling back Roe might also set the stage for rolling back other rights, especially those also based in the 14th Amendment, such as same-sex marriage or interracial marriage, which you know could also affect those families and their children as well. So if Roe is overturned, 13 states have trigger laws, meaning that they would have, you know, uh, that abortion would immediately be banned. And about 13 to 15 more states or or 16 more states would likely ban or severely limit access shortly thereafter. And according to The New York Times, 41 percent of women of childbearing age would see the nearest abortion clinic close. And the average distance they would have to travel uh, uh, to reach one would be 270 miles up from 35 miles now. Women who can't travel would be the most affected, obviously, and, you know, a 100-mile increase in driving distance decreases abortions by about 30%. And, you know, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind here. I think it's, you know, the likelihood of doing so, you know, uh, when so much belief is about, uh, about entrenched beliefs in religion, it's almost impossible. However, for folks in the music gear industry who do claim to support gender equity in music and music gear, supporting abortion access and speaking up about it is your responsibility if you want to be in line with your stated values. It affects you, your employees, it affects your customers and the industry as a whole. Before I start making connections, I think it's important for folks to learn a bit about the storied history of reproductive rights in the U.S. And there are plenty of writers who have laid that out in, um, in the, if this is new to you, the fact that, you know, like abortion rights were supported in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in 1971, 74, 73, connections between eugenics, race, reproductive technology and access and uh, abortion access for some trans men and non-binary folks. And I'll uh, include some links to all that in the show notes. But um, it's important, I think, just to understand kind of where this all came from. You know, this is, this is, <laughs> this is in some ways a new conversation for us here, um, and, but it has a lot of uh, nuance as well. So, you know, here are some statistics related to abortion. So 58% of reproductive age women live in a state that is considered hostile to abortion rights. 
abortion is currently at an all-time low since 1973. It's actually, uh, well, it went up a little bit after that. It has gone down, um, and it is very low right now comparatively. One in four women have had an abortion. That used to be one in three, so you can see that it has gone down. 54% of those who access abortions identify as mainline Protestant, evangelical, or Catholic. 51% of those who access abortions were using a form of contraceptive. 88% of abortions occur in the first 12 weeks. If Roe versus Wade were overturned or weakened, increases in travel distance would likely prevent 93,500 to 143,500 individuals each year from accessing abortion care. Half of all pregnancies are unintended and 4 in 10 end in abortion. And with that context in mind, here are some ways that abortion access connects to the music gear industry. First of all, who gets to be a musician? Abortion access can help determine who gets to be a musician. For folks who become pregnant and cannot uh, access abortion, all, as Stevie Nicks had mentioned, they might not be able to achieve their musical goals and dreams. In uh, cis-hetero relationships, the woman will likely be the one who is responsible for childcare and who is asked to put their career and uh, hobbies on hold to do so. That's just what generally tends to happen. This means fewer people will access music gear as a result. Children who are birthed in this process may come from poor households who are less likely to be able to support their musical career as well. And this also includes a lack of access to music gear. And of course, plenty of folks who wind up not having abortions are in loving, supportive, healthy families, but the issue can put a major strain on folks as well. Also, the wage gap. Presumably at this point, you've heard of the gender wage gap. First, I will note that this wage gap intersects with race as well. So white women make much more per a man's dollar than a black, Latina, or indigenous woman. But the research shows that the wage gap itself is essentially a motherhood penalty as well. Uh, if you look at a chart, and yes, this is super binary of men and women's earnings trajectories over their lifetime, you'll see that when a woman has a child, her earnings go way down and they never really recover. It's, I think, about a 30% drop. Uh, between between what it would be and what it is. Uh, women who don't have a child never experience that same dip. And I'll link to an article covering the study that demonstrates this as well. If women lack abortion and reproductive rights, they are more likely, obviously then, to experience this gap. So who gets to work for you? As you can see, due to the gendered expectations around parenting, women are often responsible for, for caregiving, whether uh, for their infants or young children, or as children age, they're responsible for drop-offs and pickups, pickups, doctor's appointments and the like. Their children or their education and their career is expected to take sort of a backseat as well, whether as a musician or as an employee in the music or industry, right? They are then, in some cases, leaving the workforce to take on unpaid household and caregiving labor. And this also affects who has the opportunity to start their own business in the industry due to the financial capital and risk and time flexibility required to do so. And obviously, you probably, or you maybe maybe you're not aware, but you know, childcare is super, super expensive. So paying somebody to do this, you have to make a certain amount of wages in order to kind of like counteract that. I think it's like $13,000 per year in Rhode Island. So if someone's only making a minimum wage, that's a part of the calculation as well, right? Support for parents. So in workplaces, in the studio, on tour, there is often very little support for parenting unless you're lucky enough to be able to afford a nanny. And, you know, there are frequently a lack of policies or working conditions that work for parents, right? And when I say parents, I mean all parents of all genders. If parenting was more acceptable or normalized in the workplace, the challenges associated with parenting 
would be less of a barrier to equity and success for all. And that means that it should also be normalized for cis men to take parental leave, to drop off and pick up their kids, or to take them to doctor's appointments, um, to have that kind of, you know, like relationship as well. This would relieve some of the burden experienced by mothers. And of course, like this normalization of parental res responsibility would open up the space and increase equity for LGBTQ folks who are parenting as well. What can you do, you may be asking. Well, uh, you know, of course, right now, it's important that you show up for your customers, employees, and families by sharing your support for their human rights, right? This is about human rights. This can take the form of protesting, donating, sharing information on social media, right? There's lots of ways this can show up. It can also mean focusing on policies that support parents, such as paid sick time, paid leave, access to education and training, support for caregiving, fair wages and opportunities to advance, quality and affordable child care, paid health care, and access to mental health supports. Uh, creating a space within your actual workplace, whether it is a, a store, a venue, whatever it is that, uh, that supports uh, parents who are there as well. Ultimately, using your power to advocate for others can do a lot to kind of show that you believe that they really are human beings and full citizens of the U.S. and deserving of the right to control their bodies. And, you know, it can mean a lot of a lot to folks to hear your voice and that of your company. And really, it is just the right thing to do. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review and share it with others so more, more folks can hear it. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.